Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Bible reading is Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned this curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, They excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came once again to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God. And do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah trading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates, 
so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joyada, son of Eliashib the priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign, and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. Hollywood movies nearly always end with a feel-good ending, and that's what causes us to go back, isn't it? We love a feel-good ending. We love when movies uh, leave us feeling inspired and joyful and uplifted, and I don't know about you, but when a movie has a poor ending, I feel kind of ripped off. I feel like that's not how it's meant to be. And I feel like uh, I should have maybe done something else and I'll never get that two hours of my life back. And so I love a great movie with a great ending. One of my favourite movies of all time is The Lion King. Still the best animated movie ever, I think. And it was an incredible movie with an incredibly good ending. But it wasn't always good during the movie, was it? There were some awful times in the movie. Uh, You might remember Scar, the evil Uncle Lion, um, killed Mufasa the king and... Um, then banished his son um, Simba from the Pride Lands and he said, you know, go uh, run away Simba and never return. And that was a really sad moment. And you remember that Scar and all the hyenas come into the Pride Land and they basically wreck the whole thing. Becomes a like a desert, desolate, and all this beautiful life vanishes under their rule. Uh, in his exile, Simba um, kind of finds himself, doesn't he? He meets a couple of good mates, uh, Pumbaa. And Tim Owen, Pumbaa the warthog, and Tim Owen the meerkat. And he goes on this discovery of, of finding who he is. And um, Akuna Matata, what a wonderful phrase. If you don't know what it means, it means don't worry. What does it mean? No worries. It means no worries. He's, no worries, mate, in Australia. Very good. And he finds his identity and he realizes eventually who he is. He is the rightful king. And so with a bit of encouragement from Rafiki, the wise old baboon, he goes back to the pride land and he conquers Scar and the hyenas and he becomes the rightful king again. And there's this moment where he goes up onto pride rock 
and cue the dramatic music. You know, dun, 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 dun. I think it's a different movie. But he goes up the top of the rock, and up there he, he puffs out his chest and he roars. And as he roars, the pride lands come back to life. The vegetation grows and the trees flourish and the whole place teems with life, with lions and tigers and bears and giraffes and zebras. And he's the king again. And the very next scene, the last scene of the movie, you've got Simba and Nala and you've got the, the baboon Rafiki and he's holding up their newborn child in the circle, the circle of life. Thank you. Dun, dun, dun. The Lion King comes up on the screen and it's the perfect ending to a movie. And it's the way a movie should be. It's the kind of moment where, where you know, Jared and Dave and, and some of the guys are in the front row holding hands and weeping because it's just a great moment that brings brothers together. And, and you leave a movie like that feeling that everything is good and right with the world. But can you imagine, as you are wiping away the tears, thinking that was so special, that the lights go back off and the screen comes back on and all of a sudden Scar is resurrected from the dead and he gathers his hyenas and they slaughter Simba and Nala and the newborn and and then it just says, the end. I mean, that would be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? You would feel real... I'll be back at the ticket box saying, I want my money back because you nailed it back there and now you've stuffed up the ending. And today, it sort of reminds me of chapter 13 of Nehemiah. For the last two months, we've been going through a series, and today's the last day. And um, if Nehemiah was a Hollywood movie, it would have finished last week in chapter 10. There would have been a full stop, and you would have your feel-good, happy ending, because we came to the high point of the book, where everything felt right and good. If you remember the story from the start, Nehemiah was the cupbearer in Persia, He had a great job, you know, trying out the choice wine and in a position of authority. It had some downfalls, like if the king was trying to be poisoned, he'd take the bullet for the king. So they had some occupational hazards in the job. But overall, it was a position of influence and a great job to be in where he had the ear of the king. But in that moment, Nehemiah was called by God to leave that position and go back to Jerusalem as a missionary, essentially, and to um, fill out, fulfill the mission that God had placed on his heart. And so he had a mission to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, um, but his vision was even greater. His vision was to see the city become a dwelling place for God, that there would be revival in the hearts of God's people, that they would come back to him, and that that nation would reflect God's character to the world around them. And so Nehemiah had come back, and he inspired a group of people to overcome great odds and complete the project. And so at the end of chapter 10, we, we found out last week that they'd come back to God with repentant hearts and they'd put him first in every area of their lives. And so at the end of chapter 10, all of the mission, all of the vision, all of the dreams, all the desires that Nehemiah had, had come to pass. This would have been a feeling of great joy and satisfaction to see what God had done in the nations. Things were going brilliantly well in Jerusalem and if it was a Hollywood movie would have the full stop at the end of chapter 10 and you've got your feel-good ending. But this is not a Hollywood story. This is what I like to call real life. And reality kicks in and as we look at chapter 13, we see that the story ends in a rather tragic and sad way. If you remember back to the end of chapter 9, we had the governor, Nehemiah, the Levites, the leaders and all the people and they'd returned to God in a pretty spectacular way. And they'd entered what they called, with their own language, 
a binding agreement, a covenant promise, a heartfelt commitment to... To, to put God first in every area of their lives. If you weren't here last week, you're thinking, what are they doing? Is this some sort of weird cult or something where they chant stuff? Uh, no, last week the title of the message was Put God First. And so every time I did, that's exactly what they said. So now you know and you're up to speed. But they came to this moment in their lives where it was an all-in commitment that they said, God, we are coming back to you and we will commit our lives to you and we will live by your word no matter what that will cost us. And if you remember from last week's sermon, chapter 10, there were three main areas that they recommitted their lives in. The first one was their relationships. In verse 30, they said that we promise, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. They committed themselves in business to put God first. They said that they wouldn't buy any grain or sell anything on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And then they recommitted themselves in the area of their wealth. Verses 32 to 39 talked all about their tithing and their various offerings that they were committing to. And it culminated in a statement in verse 39, the last verse of chapter 10, where they said, we will not neglect the house of our God. And so this is an all-in commitment. This is a group of people with every intention to live for God and to put him first in their lives. But now we get to chapter 13, the last chapter in this book and the last week of our series today, and we see that all of their good intentions, all of their promises have completely fallen apart. If we take all the promises of last week in the area of relationship and business and finance, and if we turn them on their head and did the exact opposite, that's what we find today in Nehemiah chapter 13. And so the first issue is that they're now dishonoring God in their relationships. And there's three situations in the passage that really highlight that. In the first two verses, it says that they'd invited the Ammonites and the Moabites into their community. And their worship of false gods and their influence was rubbing off on God's people. In verses 4 and 5, they had given Tobiah a room in the temple. Now, if you remember back to chapter 2, I introduced you to two guys called Sanballat and Tobiah. And I said in the original Hebrew, it's meant dumb and dumber, remember? And Tobiah, if my memory serves me correct, was the dumber one. He was just as dumb as they come. And they were incredibly dumb because they were opposing God and they were opposing God's people. And all the way through the book, all the way through the building project, they were undermining Nehemiah. They were causing the project to be difficult. They were a thorn in the side of God's people and they threatened the very lives of God's people as they built the wall. And so Tobiah had been an absolute nightmare, and yet we read in these verses that one of the priests has now invited Tobiah, not just to come into their community, but to set up his office in the house of God. And so here he is, set up in God's house, an office for this guy who's directly opposing God. The third situation that highlights that they've forsaken God in their relationships is found down in verses 23 and 24. It says, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Amon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Verse 26 highlights why this was a big mistake and Nehemiah does it by pointing to Solomon. Solomon was a great king. In his time, he was the wisest king who'd ever existed. God called him and he anointed him as a very wise man and he was so wise that people would come from right around the world just to hear his wisdom. 
And they would leave in awe going, man, this guy is incredibly wise. But at the same time, which seems to me like a bit of an oxymoron, the Bible also tells us that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And I'm not sure if that's the definition of wisdom. That's a thousand wives, a thousand women that you've got to please. That's a thousand women that are asking you, does my bottom look big in this? And I tell you, you need more than wisdom in that situation. You need a miracle to navigate those waters. And so in many ways, he was unwise. And in fact, his relationship with foreign women who had foreign gods was the downfall of his kingship, which took him from being a great king to ultimately a failure as a king. And so Nehemiah reminds the people of their history and the mistakes that Solomon made. And in verse 26, he says, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him the king over all of Israel. But even he, the wisest man that ever existed, was led into sin by foreign women. The wisest man on earth couldn't do it. You boneheads have no chance. And so why are you doing what you promised not to do? And so it becomes clear that they are no longer putting God first in their relationships. They are actually partnering with people, joining themselves to people who are opposed to God. And that's what's happening in Jerusalem, in a city that was meant to be a dwelling place for God's name, where they had a vision that, that God would be put first in every area of their lives, this vision had now been compromised by allowing the worship of other gods within their walls. They were dishonouring God, first of all, in their relationships, but they were also dishonouring God, and they walked away from God in the area of business. If you look at verse 15, it says, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Didn't our ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and in this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And so if you remember back in chapter 10, they'd made a commitment to put God first in their business. And what that meant is that the Sabbath day was a day that they set apart exclusively to worship God. And so they wouldn't work on that day. They wouldn't do things on that day. They would actually just dedicate that day to worshipping God. And they believed that if they did that, they'd come to the point of trusting God, that he'd not only meet their needs, but he'd bless them for keeping the Sabbath holy. And yet we get to chapter 13, and they've simply gone back to working on the Sabbath. They've forgotten what they'd promised, and they're not putting God first in their business. Finally, they've also neglected God in their finances. In verse 10, I also learned that the portion assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Now, last week I explained that Jacob the patriarch had 12 sons and before he died, he blessed those 12 sons and they became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And 11 of those tribes were given an inheritance of land. And so as part of your inheritance, here's some land, and you can use that land. And that land was used to settle in. They could build houses, and they could make a home there. But it was also used to, um, you know, either have crops or, you know, cattle to produce money so that they could live and provide for their everyday needs. But there was one tribe, the Levites, who weren't given an allotment of land as their inheritance. They were the priestly tribe. 
And they were called to go throughout the land and minister to God's people. And one of their key roles was to help the priests in the temple um, to, to care for their needs, but also to help facilitate day-to-day worship. And so instead of an inheritance of land, they were given an inheritance by the other 11 tribes. So 11 tribes, they took up a tithe, the first 10% of what they had, and they set that aside for the Levites. And that became their inheritance. And so they took that money and they gave 10% back to the temple, but the rest of it they would use to meet their everyday needs and to provide an income for them as they actually served God as priests or in priestly duties. But what we read here in chapter 13 is that the other 11 tribes actually stopped giving their tithe to the Levites. And so not only did the Levites have no inheritance of land, but they also had no income now to be able to meet their everyday needs and to uh, fulfill their role ministering to God's people. And so we read here that they'd have to go back to the fields. They'd all neglected the temple, they'd stopped doing the ministry, and they'd gone back to the fields just to make enough money so that they could live. And so their promise in the last verse of chapter 10, where they said that they wouldn't neglect the house of God, now comes to a head here in verse 11, when Nehemiah asks the question, why is the house of God neglected? And so we see that everything that they promised to do has fallen apart. And we might ask ourselves, how could they possibly fall from grace so dramatically when they made such incredible commitments, and how could it happen so quickly? Well, I think when we look at this passage, there's a couple of hints. The first hint is that I think they lack leadership. Not only were the Levites not now ministering to God's people and much of the spiritual activity and worship in the temple had disappeared, but they also lacked Nehemiah's leadership. I don't know if you've noticed in this book, but Nehemiah is an incredible leader. And I've come to the conviction that he's the most understated leader in all scripture. Uh, We hear of great leaders all the time, King David and Apostle Paul and all sorts of people, but I don't think I've ever heard Nehemiah mentioned. But he's an incredible leader. And we know he's a great leader because we've got to watch how people follow him. If you want to know if someone's a great leader, you've got to watch who's actually following their example. And we see with Nehemiah that he's a man of courage and conviction. He's a man of boldness and vision. He's a person who put God first and set an example that the people followed. I mean, Nehemiah cast a God-given vision and the people were inspired. He stepped out in faith and the people followed. He persevered in the face of opposition and the people stood with him. He stood for justice and the people stopped ripping each other off and cared for the poor. When he repented, the whole nation turned to God. When he was generous, the people gave generously. And it highlights the importance of leadership. I remember Kevin Sheedy a few years ago talking about an opposition football team and the coach wasn't doing the right thing and he made the comment that the fish rots at the head. In other words, if you have the wrong leadership in place, everything else flows down. That's why here at Follow, we're trying to be accountable as our leadership team. We're trying to be people who are faithful in what we do. We want to be transparent with you as a congregation to journey with you, that we do everything to put God first. We won't always get it right, but we're doing our best to do that. But leadership is absolutely critical, and it flows from the top down. I remember going into Beaconsfield Baptist a number of years ago when I first started as the associate pastor. And I had my interview with a bunch of the leaders and also David Morland, and he was the much-loved pastor of Beaconsfield Baptist at that time. Been there for about 13 years, and I don't think he'd mind me saying, but David is a lovable dag. He's a bit eccentric, and he's a bit out there, but he is just warm and friendly and engaging, and he genuinely loves people, and he's just a good person to be around. 
And, and I looked at David in the interview, and then I walked into the church, and what I experienced in the church community when I first arrived there just felt like a mini David. It was warm and welcoming and a bit of a lovable dag and, and all of those things. But I saw that his leadership had flowed down in a really positive way on that congregation. And it reminded me of how critical leadership is. All these situations with Israel demonstrated that Nehemiah was a wonderful leader. But what made him a truly great leader is that he kept pointing people back to God. If you're following someone and the, and the example stops with them, they're probably not someone worth following. Any great leader will always point you back to Jesus. He's the one ultimately that we are following. And Nehemiah, in this story, was a wonderful leader. And while Nehemiah was there leading, the people kept putting God first. They kept following God. But in verse 6, we read that while all of this was going on, while everything was falling apart, Nehemiah says, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission. I came back to Jerusalem. And so in this time, Israel lacked leadership. He left Israel in an incredible state, this amazing high point in their history. And he comes back to a big, giant mess. And I love what happens when he comes back. We see once again the power of leadership. He comes into a community. He comes back into the city and he helps them get back on track to the things that they promised. First of all, he helps them back in their relationships. In verse 3, he reminds them of the law, and as a result, they exclude the Ammonites and the Moabites and all their false worship from the community. In verse 8, he goes into the temple and he grabs all of Tobiah's stuff, and he picks it up and he lists it on Gumtree, and he throws it out on the nature strip, and he says, not, not, not now, bucko, not when I'm back here leading. You're not going to be in the temple wrecking this place. As it reminds me of Jesus when he purified the temple. He grabbed all his stuff, he kicked him out and he said, no way. And he said he had the temple purified and then he put all the stuff back in so that it was once again a place of worship. In verse 25, I think the most dramatic one and also the most mildly amusing one is that he goes to those who have intermarried. And in verse 25, he said, I rebuked them and I called curses down them on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. Now, I'm not advocating this as a model of church discipline here at Follow, the five-fold ministry, but hey, it worked, right? And so Nehemiah just took things into his hands. And he said, I made them take an oath in God's name. And I said, you're not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. As I said, I'm not advocating this as a way of dealing with relationship issues. Nehemiah says, yes, Australia says no. But what I am saying is that Nehemiah's response shows how seriously he takes putting God first in our relationships. He also helps them put God first once again in their wealth. Verse 11, when he learned that the Levites were not receiving the tithe, he rebuked the officials and he asked them, why is the house of God being neglected? Then I called them together. This is what a leader does. He gathers people together and he stationed them at their posts to receive the tithes again. Thirdly, he helped them in their business. When he saw them trading on the Sabbath, in verse 19, he said, When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of the goods spent the night outside of Jerusalem. But in verse 21, I warned them. And I said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. 
Another version says, if you do this again, I will lay hands on you. And we have seen already that Nehemiah is not a man to be messed with. If you mess with him, he'll tear your hair out. He won't tear his own hair out. He'll tear your hair out. And he'll give you a good fashion, old-fashioned beating. And so from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. They took his threat seriously. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. This is leadership at its very best. Comes back into a mess and he causes the people to turn their affection and their attention and their behavior back to the God they'd made promises to. This highlights the importance of leadership and it's in this time of their history that they'd lack Nehemiah's leadership. But as I read the passage and I realized the lack of leadership, it actually hit me that I don't think that was the biggest issue. I think the biggest issue was this, that they'd failed to make their relationship with God personal. And this is here where the rubber hits the road for each of us. Uh, are we in a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about uh, an obligatory, ritualistic, come to church once a month kind of relationship where I feel like I should pick this up now and then and blow the dust off it. And, and if I do that and tick a bunch of boxes, then maybe God will love me. I'm not talking about that kind of relationship. I'm talking about a relationship that's dynamic and alive, the kind of relationship where we speak to God and he listens and he speaks to us and we listen and we journey with him in relationship day by day. Let me tell you, if you don't have a relationship with God like that, you're missing out. It's the greatest relationship you will ever find in your life that he will be with you no matter what. The kind of relationship where he turns you inside out, upside down kind of relationship that brings deep joy and a lasting fulfillment in life it's the greatest relationship you can ever experience and so while nehemiah has been there with the people he's helped to keep them on track but as soon as he left they just walked away from god in all the same old areas and the reason is because their relationship with god wasn't personal leadership is a god-given gift for the church Uh, We're called to honour and respect our leaders. It's a gift from God. But our relationship with God should never be dependent on our leaders or our parents or anyone else in our life. Our relationship should be dependent on God. If you're relying on any person other than Jesus to keep you focused on God, it's a problem with your heart. God wants us to come to him and to follow him. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says, Remember your leaders. Who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. These people may have remembered Nehemiah, but they certainly weren't imitating his faith. And so today we come to the end of this series, the end of the book of Nehemiah. And some of you might find it really discouraging and disappointing to come to chapter 13 and to see the whole thing's just gone to pieces. You might think that's not how the story is meant to end. Our Hollywood ending is ruined and it seems kind of deflating. But I tell you, I'm actually pretty glad it finishes this way. I'll tell you why I'm glad, because this is real life. This is reality. This is relatable for you and me. We can look at Israel and we can go, you idiots, until we take a step back. We go, actually, it reminds me a bit of me. It reminds me a bit of you. You know, we want to follow God. But the truth is that some days we fall short. There are some days that are like Nehemiah chapter 10 and it feels like everything's going well. The sun's shining and we're following God and we're putting him first and there's a passion and hunger for the lost and we open up the Bible and the words jump off the page at us and we pray and it feels like God's answering every prayer and we feel like we can move mountains and and I love those seasons in life. 
If you're in that season right now, I want you to ride that wave, that momentum, and, and learn as much as you can in that season. Because there's other days that are more like Nehemiah 13. Days when we feel like we've let God down. Days where we feel like we're a disappointment. Days where we feel like we're a failure. Days when we pick up the Bible and we seem to get nothing out of it. Days when we pray and it feels like the prayers bounce off the ceiling of heaven. Days when we feel like I'm not putting God first in anything. And that's the reality of our lives. Sometimes we take five steps forward. This is sanctification. Just. And two steps back. Other days it's two steps forward and it's five steps back. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. And so what's the takeaway from this at the end of this series? What's the takeaway of the mess that they're in? Well, I think the takeaway is this, that we need to be people who get up and keep going. We need to keep turning our hearts back to God. And Jesus has made a way for us to do that. And he's given us the Holy Spirit who will empower us and strengthen us to turn our affection, our attention back to him. And so don't give up. So often in those difficult days, we get discouraged and we condemn ourselves, don't we? We think, I'm hopeless, I've done it again. I've fallen short again. And that's exactly what the devil wants. We see in Nehemiah, so much opposition came their way and the temptation was to give up. And that's exactly where the devil wants us to go, to condemn ourselves. But the Bible says there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You see, condemnation fills us with guilt and shame and it draws us away from God. And there is another C word, it's the word conviction. Conviction is the Holy Spirit working in our heart and conviction is totally different because it actually turns our hearts back to God. It reminds us to fall on the grace and mercy of Jesus. And on the days that we've fallen down, I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. Don't let me sing again, will you? I've done enough of that today already. It might wake you up though. I get knocked down and I get up again. Why? Because the grace of Jesus Christ is incredible. When we fall, he's there to pick us up. He's there to empower us to be people who live for him. Most of us have good intentions, don't we? We strive to follow God, put him first, but we so often fall short of our own standard, let alone God's. I don't think any of us wake up in the morning and think, how can I disappoint God today? How can I second? How can I put God second today? How can I sin today? What can I get started on as I wake up this morning? How can I sin? Let's get into it. I don't think any of us do that. And yet it's the story of our lives. Over and over again, we fall short. I want to encourage you today to rest on the grace of Jesus. As we see Nehemiah, he was a man with a repentant heart. He kept coming back and God kept empowering and equipping him to lead a group of people who fixed their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. With God's help and with the power of the Holy Spirit, he can continue to help us to be people who put God first. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for today's story in Nehemiah chapter 13. And Lord, it seems like a funny thing to thank you for because it seems so discouraging in so many ways. But Lord, as I said a moment ago, it's so relatable to us. Lord, we want to live for you. We want to put you first. And I thank you for the times in our life when we have. And Lord, we thank you that you remind us that when we do, there's so much blessing in that life. But Lord, we all know that there are times in all of our lives where we fall incredibly short, where we stumble, where we fall down, where we fail. But Lord, I thank you in those moments that through the work of the cross, you have redeemed us, you have forgiven us, you have given us hope for the future, not just now, but for all eternity. 
So Lord, I pray that we'd be a community of people who rest on your grace, that are empowered by your love that is unconditional in our lives. Lord, help us to be people who live for you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.